Hey, hey, hello, this is Chris Olson, and welcome to Shoutbox. On today's program is Jillian Brandstetter, Media Relations Manager for the Washington, D.C.-based National Center for Transgender Equality, or NCTE. Jillian helps reporters connect with NCTE's team of policy experts working on healthcare access, employment protections, identification documents, and many more issues faced by transgender people today as well as working with transgender folks from around the country to promote their stories and ensure news coverage is fair and accurate. Jillian, welcome to Shoutbox. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. So let's start off from the very top. Let's talk about the mission of the National Center for Transgender Equality. What, you know, what are you all about and, and what are you trying to do for the world? Sure. So the National Center for Transgender Equality is a policy advocacy organization, and we're based in Washington, D.C., as you had noted. Throughout the country and in uh, Washington, we're working to replace disrespect, discrimination, and violence against transgender people with empathy, opportunity, and justice by advocating for policies that are inclusive of transgender people people as well as help them sustain safe and stable lives. Uh, We frankly are hoping for a society in which transgender people are not only allowed to survive, but thrive with accepting families, accepting communities, accepting employers, a sense of safety in their own self. And a lot of that is guided by a mission of allowing for trans people to self-determinate their own future, to have a sense of liberty over their own identity and a sense of autonomy over their own rights. We were founded in 2003. Our executive director is our founder, uh, Mara Kiesling. She often jokes that she had the best qualification for the job, which was that she was available. Um, <laughs> obviously, there was trans advocacy before NCT in 2003, dating back to Stonewall and dating back before Stonewall. But NCT is, has probably been one of the premier voices, one of the earliest voices for trans rights in the nation's capital. That's phenomenal. And how large of an organization is it? Just about 20 people, which actually is it's a growth spurt for us. The organization has doubled in size since about 2016. We have grown significantly as we're trying to hold the Trump administration accountable. What are some of the issues or agendas that you are pursuing, on, you know, just in general on both a local and state level? So our portfolio is rather broad. It ranges from keeping trans kids safe in schools by advocating for federal protections for them or helping people working within their own school board or within their state department of education, fighting abuse by law enforcement against transgender people. One of four transgender people have experienced some form of mistreatment by law enforcement. Police regularly profile and harass transgender people, particularly black transgender women. And we've done things like audit the policies that are in place at the largest police departments across the country and assess how they're preparing their officers to engage with transgender people. Spoiler alert is that they're all kind of failing. Uh, Many are doing better, but certainly right there in Chicago, uh, there is a lot of room to grow. We're working to improve conditions for trans people anytime they're interacting with federal agencies. One of the biggest ones is the TSA. Uh, We often joke that if you want to find a trans person who's had a problem with the TSA, you just need to find a trans person. So, you know, when you fly and you go through that body scanner, what a lot of people don't know is happening behind the scenes of that body scanner is the TSA guard is assigning you as either male or female. And then they gauge that against sort of a manic envision of male or female, which obviously excludes a lot of trans people and often forces them to be either set aside for extra questioning or face intense scrutiny, uh, either just be embarrassed. And frankly, we've also heard things like people being strip searched just by virtue of their being trans. That's a very good example of the ways that a 
lot of the systems of the federal government haven't been built with trans people in mind. And we're working to do that, not just at the TSA, but obviously through Veterans Affairs, through listings on forms, through things like uh, the passport policy, which we and a lot of other advocates were happy to improve back in 2010. It used to be that you had to have a surgical treatment in order to update your passport, which can often be cost prohibitive for most people, especially uh, just as a barrier for updating what is basically a bureaucratic form. And we made it so that you really just need a doctor's signature as opposed to any one specific treatment. And that's made things easier for a lot of trans people. Some key sort of wins that we've had over time include trans inclusion in the Violence Against Women Act. Trans people are inordinately more likely to face intimate partner violence, to face sexual violence, to face physical violence. So the programs that are funded by the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA as it's often called, uh, are really life-saving for a lot of trans people. The James Beard and Matthew Shepard Hate Crimes Act, which passed in 2009 and was the first federal law to include protections on the basis of gender identity, and which increased uh, penalties faced by people who commit crimes against somebody because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And even on under this administration, we're working to advance what's known as the Equality Act, which is sort of the landmark bill of the LGBTQ rights movement. It is a non-discrimination law, so it would amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include sexual orientation and gender identity, thereby protecting anyone from facing discrimination because they're gay or because they're trans in employment, in housing, in any business that's open to the public, uh, right down through education, through credit, through jury service. And this is uh, clearly a long overdue bill and something that we really see as the benchmark for LGBT equality in this country. Now, it passed the House. Uh, Different iterations of the Equality Act have been introduced going back to 1973 when it was just known as the Gay Rights Bill. Um, And some savvy listeners might even remember the ENDA days in 2007, 2008. This year was the first time any such bill actually passed the House of Representatives. We passed it with a very broad majority back in May. And that was a historic moment and, frankly, uh, kind of an invigorating moment just even being in the House and seeing so many elected leaders who are so proud to stand with trans people. I've spoken with trans people have been in the movement for years and years and years, and they've told stories about, you know, they wouldn't even let us in the building before. They certainly weren't going to pick up our phone call. They certainly weren't going to meet with us to discuss a policy. Trans people were sort of seen as either a side issue not worth considering or as some sort of obscenity that clearly had no place in the halls of power. So the fact that a collection of us uh, were sitting in the um, House galley watching this vote back in May and seeing people applauding Um, because they're that happy to stand up for trans people is really invigorating and really validating, I hope not just to the work we're doing, but I know to the work that advocates are doing around the country. That likewise includes a lot of state policy, so we're really proud to work with state advocates around the country. That often means enacting laws in states that are kind of like the Equality Act, but only for that state, that protect discrimination on the basis of gender identity. Gender in New York State just passed this year, and that made 
state, New York, the 21st state to prohibit discrimination by an employer on the basis of gender identity. Likewise, we're often working with state education departments to make sure that they're preparing school boards and school administrators for respecting the rights of transgender students and keeping transgender students safe and giving transgender students a space where they can thrive. A big uh, initiative, particularly we've had in the last few years, is working with different state DMVs and state vital records departments to make it easier for transgender people or anyone to update their identity documents. So driver's licenses, state-issued IDs, birth certificates. When I say updating, I usually mean uh, updating the name. So after a transgender person has, has attained a legal name change, they will likely want to change it on their legal documents as well. And updating the gender marker, which many people's first driver's license, for example, won't have the gender they identify with. It'll have the gender they were assigned at birth. And obviously, birth certificates always have the gender you were assigned at birth. And uh, a core part of being trans is realizing that that is not right for you. And updating those is a really crucial step because these are documents that you carry around with you throughout your life. They're documents you use to get other documents. They're documents you use when uh, applying for a loan, when when trying to lease an apartment, when trying to buy Robitussin at the grocery store. So being able to update these documents is a really great way for transgender people to be able to protect our own privacy because it might not always be the most comfortable space to out yourself as trans while likewise not carrying around a lie in your wallet. Let me ask you a question specifically about that because that's, you know, that is really fascinating. So, for example, just in Illinois, I know that the governor uh, approved gender neutral markers with, I believe it'll be an X instead of an MRF, which is, you know, a step forward. But there's still a a potential wait until 2024, if I remember correctly, uh, because of the card vendor. Is that something that you see often that just, you know, even if a good policy is adopted, just there's a bureaucratic, you know, backlog before it gets filled in? So occasionally, a five-year wait is a little unique to us. We were very proud to work with Equality Illinois, a great statewide organization, uh, securing that policy. That said, uh, a five-year wait does seem uh, uh, a bit extraordinary. Typically, these policies are often enacted within the same year. If they're passed through legislation, oftentimes through administrative changes, they can be available soon as a month. There are even some states where there actually isn't a written policy, and we just know the state has been uh, signing them out. So, for example, the first place in the United States that had a finalized and enacted policy for X gender markers, gender-neutral gender markers on driver's licenses, was right here in Washington, D.C. in 2016. And they were able to begin issuing them pretty much immediately after the policy was secured. In Arkansas, the DMV actually claims that they've been issuing X gender markers since 2010, but they don't have a written policy in place. Now, obviously, we would prefer a written policy in place so people understand what their rights are, so people, there's transparency to the process. Certainly, that's a somewhat more common occurrence because we also heard that in Indiana, which just enacted it into actual policy, um, in Pennsylvania, which just announced that uh, they're going to make it available on their driver's licenses starting next year. And there are also sort of two routes, as I noted, to how these can be changed. So in Illinois, it's done through legislation, but it's not always. Uh, sometimes it really is just an administrative change. It's simply just the DMV or the vital records office, making that option available and updating their systems to input it. In California, it was enacted through legislation, and there was about a two-year wait, and 
California became the largest state in the union to offer ex-gender markers just starting in January this year. As far as that goes, I mean, a lot of this, just the whole idea of even when you're flying, that there uh, there's a box A and a box B. Is part of this just trying to remove that need for binary, trying to remove the need for, for gendering, period, in these documents? I mean, would that actually be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that, so there are some reasons you may want to collect gender information, not necessarily on driver's licenses, on birth certificates, but certainly when you're looking at academic research, when you're looking at medical research, uh, when you're even looking at things like the census, there might be some core reasons that you do want to identify because then you can help identify sort of what are issues that are disparately impacting one gender over another. But largely, a lot of these documents that people are carrying around, including driver's licenses, including birth certificates, including passports, they broadly don't need gender. Gender was really first, sort of became the norm in these documents decades and decades ago, long before even photographs were on these documents. And they were seen as sort of a a key descriptor of the person who was holding them. Not only is that somewhat inerrant, but it has long ago been made defunct. It's not really necessary. I mean, you've even seen oftentimes opponents to these policies, and I'm not entirely certain who's business it is, but opponents to these policies oftentimes will say, like, oh, well, what about, uh, you know, if somebody's in a car accident, uh, it's an important for the EMT to know the gender of the person that they're working on. Frankly, we've actually seen a lot of hospitals begin to remove these because they say, no, it's not. It's not really something that, you know, hospital staff are using to ID a patient. So on the wristband you get, if you get admitted into the ER in some hospitals, they've begun removing an M or an F instead of allowing for an X because the information, frankly, isn't helping anyone. And we think that's true here with driver's licenses. So we were really proud to have worked with Medicare and Medicaid Services, which began issuing uh, new Medicare cards last year. And for the first time, all 55 million Medicare cards were issued without a gender marker. That's a good example of the sort of progress that we'd like to see. Now, obviously, um, we're willing to work with folks and and, and meet in middle solutions towards ex-gender markers. And in the meantime, ex-gender markers are a super important policy. And we have been amazed at the growth of them. I told you that that first policy that was enacted in D.C. was enacted in 2016. Uh, Since then, Illinois, I think, is the 15th state. Um, So this is a very fast-moving policy, largely because people understand that it's really common sense and that if it makes life easier for people, uh, if it gives people more autonomy and more independence over their identity and over their information, uh, then why not? A lot of great information there. But one thing that I know you you touched on, I'd love to touch on a a little bit more detail, is this upcoming Title VII of the civil rights. So uh, it sounds like the, the Equality Act is something you are you know, strongly you know, pursuing, but you know, with the pushback you know, from the administration, what sort of battle are, are, are we looking at here? So for those who don't know, on October 8th, the Supreme Court is going to begin hearing arguments in several cases, but one in particular that focuses on a woman named Amy Stevens. Amy lived in, and worked in Michigan. She worked for a funeral home for about six years. She had actually worked in the funeral home business for about 20 years. And right after she came out as transgender uh, to her employer, she was fired. So she challenged this first through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, then through uh, district court and federal court. 
She continuously won, and the funeral home, which is now being represented by this very high-powered, very far-right Christian law firm called the Alliance Defending Freedom, the funeral home has now appealed Amy's case uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on is whether discrimination against Amy or against any transgender person is a form of sex discrimination. So discrimination on the basis of sex is prohibited by the Civil Rights Act, by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as you said. And for the last two decades, federal courts have understood that includes discriminating against a transgender person. Uh, Amy Stevens' lawyer put this really smartly, I thought, when he said that Amy Stevens was a very valued employee when everyone was under the impression that she was a man. And the moment that she told them that she was a woman, they fired her. That is sex discrimination on its face. It is judging somebody because they are not fitting your gender norms, which is why this case is a concern not just for 2 million transgender people in this country, but it should really be a concern for anyone. Because what it means is that if the funeral home wins in this case, then any employer can enforce their notions of what makes a man and what makes a woman onto you. And if any of their workers flouts that, if any of their workers is a cisgender woman, and it has short hair, for example, the employer could suddenly decide, well, I'm going to fire you not because you're a woman, but because you have short hair, so therefore it's not sex discrimination, which is ludicrous on its face and certainly paints the very heavy stakes of the Supreme Court. Amy is being represented rather proudly by the ACLU. It's important to remember that the ACLU has the highest track record of wins of any legal organization in the history of the country. It's important to remember that if they decide to overturn Amy's victories, in past legal courts, the Supreme Court will have to be knocking down two to three decades of precedent. And it's important to understand that the Department of Justice under the Trump administration filed a brief saying, yes, employers should be able to fire transgender people uh, because they are trans. And they actually couldn't get a single lawyer from the Equal Opportunity Commission, which is a bipartisan commission and is majority Republican right now. They could not get a single lawyer to join that brief with them. The legal arguments here are really shaky. That said, the Supreme Court is definitely more conservative than it once was. We have two Trump appointees on the Supreme Court, including at least one that was stolen. So we are taking this very seriously. Uh, on NCTE's part, we filed an amicus brief with the courts. We were one of many organizations that did. Organizations that uh, showed up for Amy in this case include major medical organizations like the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association, former business leaders who are themselves women and who are sort of on the vanguard of opening up Title VII to include what's often called sex stereotyping through major business leaders, over 125 Fortune 1000 companies filed a brief in this case, as well as civil rights groups like the NAACP. It's fair to say that both in a, a quantitative and qualitative sense, Amy has everyone in her corner that we could possibly want and ask for. Trans people are very afraid of this case. It can oftentimes seem, living under Trump, that we're getting the door shut in our face as soon as we got our foot in the door. We are relatively new to public life. We are relatively newly visible. And most people are just getting to know the trans people in their life. So to have a Supreme Court case that could reverse a ton of the hard-fought gains that transgender people have made is very frightening to a lot of people. And understandably so. In a case like this, in, in Amy's case, as an example, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like you, uh, you tend to deal with clients, per se. You're dealing with issues. But 
are are some of these issues brought to you by the attention of individuals that then you know cause you to act, or how do you engage on on an issue? Like I said, we are a policy advocacy organization that is different than something like what the ACLU does, which is litigation. We are in court representing people. We are to use a loaded word. We're lobbyists. We're meeting with legislators. We're meeting with governors. We're meeting with state legislators. We're meeting with other advocacy groups. We're meeting with direct service organizations, state agencies, federal agencies, and working with them to improve their policies. I, I guess you would say that's sort of three quarters of our mission. And then the other quarter of our mission is a lot of my portfolio, which is public education, um, which is informing, one, the general public about transgender people um, and about the many barriers that are put in place against them, educating transgender people about what their actual rights are. I think there's a lot of misinformation, a very common occurrence with trans people. It's very hard to even find information about anything from your general health care to how to update your documents to what your rights are at the municipal, state, or federal level. Um, so we try to be a key resource for our community in that way at transequality.org. We have a huge swath of information, including our identity documents So, for example, if any of your listeners in Illinois or anywhere else wanted to update their driver's license, their birth certificate, their passport, their military records, their immigration records, we have everything laid out in plain English, as plain as we possibly can, largely um, because we know that nobody else is. And sometimes a lot of this information can be coded in a lot of legalese that isn't necessarily approachable to the layman. Another big thing that we've done, probably the thing for which we're we're most well-known for, frankly, is the U.S. Transgender Survey. So this was conducted first in 2010 and then in 2015, and we're preparing for a 2020 update now. The most recent version, the 2015 version, pulled the experiences of nearly 28,000 transgender people and asked them distinctly about their experiences in a range of areas of life, ranging from family to relationships to faith community, through school, through employment, through work, through harassment in public spaces, through discrimination in the immigration system to discrimination from law enforcement, experiences in prison. It's a very, very in-depth survey. The full thing is about 400 pages. What we found was a lot of what we knew, but it was still stunning to put numbers to it. So, for example, trans people are three times as likely to be unemployed as the general American public and twice as likely to live below the poverty line as the general public. One in three have been homeless in our lifetimes. One in eight were homeless in just the last year. One in three have been turned away by a medical provider. We have nine times the rate of suicide attempts as the general population. A lot of those factors are multiplied by other forms of discrimination. For example, if you're transgender and black, your risk for poverty, your risk for violence, and your risk for discrimination are going to be higher. Uh, Same if you're transgender and undocumented. Same if you're transgender and HIV positive or a sex worker. A lot of life experiences, a lot of identities often act as multipliers on the forms of discrimination a transgender person faces. It's one reason why the rate of violence is so high for black transgender women. Black transgender women have four times the likelihood of becoming a murder victim as a cis woman. A lot of that is fueled by how exposed they are to violence. If you have a job, you are less likely to experience violence. If you have stable housing, you are less likely to experience violence. If you have support from your family, your family biological or chosen, right? If you have connections in your community, if you trust law enforcement, if law enforcement trusts you, you are less likely to experience violence. And one of the reasons that 
the rate of violence facing black transgender women in this country has reached epidemic levels is because of the barriers that they often do face to accessing things like stable housing, employment, uh, a lot of the safeguards that a lot of other people might take for granted. Just this year, 18 transgender people that we know of have been killed, and 17 of them were black transgender women. And I stress that we know of because there's a very long legacy of law enforcement misidentifying trans murder victims. So this often used to look like headlines or, 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 you know, segments in the police blotter of your paper that say, dead man found in dress, for example. In fact, I was just reading about a shelter in Juarez, Mexico. Uh, A lot of areas of Mexico are very, very violent for transgender people. Juarez recently had uh, in the last year, 10 transgender women were found murdered in just this one city in Mexico. And law enforcement there said, no, 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 the gangs are dressing them up to embarrass them. And that seems kind of absurd on its face because the transgender community is saying, no, we knew them. And also they had partially begun medically transitioning as well. So it does, that doesn't seem like a reasonable explanation and frankly can often seem like a cover-up. Even here in the state, I was fortunate enough to work with some reporters out of ProPublica last year uh, on a report they did looking at misidentification of trans murder victims. And they found that of the people who were eventually identified as trans women, uh, 85% of the time the police wrongly identified them, including by using their old name, perhaps by using the wrong pronouns for them. I think sometimes a lot of these these language missteps can seem small to some people, but that is effectively erasing that person's existence. And while that's very demeaning to face while you're alive, uh, it's even more shameful to do to somebody who just died, uh, whose uh, life was just taken uh, from violence. There is more and more, when you talk to sort of older uh, trans advocates who have uh, watched this crisis sort of grow in visibility and and, uh, unfortunately grow in in extremity, they say that more and more what you're seeing are families stand up because more often, obviously more often trans people can count on the support of their family today than they could 15 or or 20 years ago. And that's super important um, because a lot of these people that we're losing are daughters, their sisters, their friends, their, you know, they are sources of support in their community. They are mentors to other trans women in the cities where they live. Uh, So the impact of this kind of violence is uh, uh, devastating, Um, not just because of the fear it spreads, not just because of the the disparate impact it has on people, but because it's it's stealing people uh, who we need. Now, I think I got a little far from your question, uh, which was, how do we advocate for policy? Um, But part of that is to stress the importance of public education and the public education efforts that we do, and frankly, the legal protections that we seek. So when we're seeking for uh, either a state bill or or the Equality Act that protects discrimination against transgender people seeking housing, that's because we know that unstable housing can lead to violence. When we're pushing back against the Trump administration, when they're trying to make it harder for transgender people to access health care, which they're trying to do right now, as they announced uh, at the beginning of the summer, We know that that makes life harder for transgender people and increases their risk for any number of things. There is nary a department in this administration's cabinet that has not taken action against transgender people. I think a lot of times people don't quite realize that how big a priority we are for this administration and for the far right generally. I think sometimes people 
when they they think of attacks by the Trump administration, they might think of the uh, uh, the military ban, which was certainly a top level priority in which we and, and many other organizations fought hard against and continue to fight hard against. The range of attacks that the Trump administration has enacted uh, is far broader than that. At the Department of Justice, you have them seizing investigations of uh, employment discrimination and telling the Supreme Court that employers should be allowed to discriminate. At the Department of Education, just days after taking office, uh, Secretary DeVos withdrew uh, crucial protections, telling schools and telling teachers how to protect the rights of transgender students and protect transgender students from bullying and harassment. That was thrown out within, I think, the first week of the Trump administration. Uh, The Department of Labor is trying to make it easier for federal contractors to fire transgender people and then claim that it was religiously motivated, so therefore they shouldn't have to face charges for it, which is in direct contradiction of an executive order from under the Obama administration. The Department of Justice also told federal prisons to stick transgender women in men's prison. I, I often say that there are few people in society more vulnerable than a transgender person in prison. According to our U.S. Transgender Survey, a transgender person in prison has 10 times the rate of experiencing sexual violence from one of their peers, one of their other inmates, and five times the rate of experiencing sexual violence at the hands of prison staff. So the Trump administration withdrawing what was called the Female Offender Handbook and was meant to be uh, a guideline for uh, federal prisons to follow federal law, because uh, there is federal law in this matter known as the, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Repealing that guidance and sort of uh, spreading confusion about what the rights of transgender prisoners are is gravely harmful to a group of people who very much need our help, very much need our right. sympathy, yeah, yeah. Uh, and very much need protection and safety. Um, the housing and urban development is trying to make it easier for shelters to turn away trans people. Um, as I noted, homelessness is, is a very great crisis facing transgender people. It's one of the most commonly shared experiences transgender people have. And we also know that that is uh, unfortunately going to uh, impact transgender youth. There's not a ton of great data, I'll confess, on the experiences of trans youth specifically, but we do do know that 40% of homeless youth in this country identify as LGBTQ. And we do know that trans people who have experienced homelessness, particularly earlier in life, are more likely to live in poverty, are more likely to be forced into survival sex work, are more likely to experience violence, either uh, in the form of uh, harassment in public or, or from an intimate partner. There's been this sort of gnome that comes across, and it's usually said, in, in, and rightfully so, in the frame of the uh, abuses we see in ICE detention, which also have a disparate impact on trans people, that uh, the cruelty of this administration is the point. That is a lesson transgender people have unfortunately known since the very first day of this administration. And that is fueled, by the way, by a hyper-focus on us, by uh, far-right groups, including the Heritage Foundation, including the Family Research Council, including the Alliance Defending Freedom, which I mentioned earlier, which the Trump administration has basically been using as a pool of candidates for not just positions in the administration, but lifetime appointments to federal judgeships uh, around the country. It's really important, I think, that uh, for your listeners and really for anyone who cares about trans people to understand that uh, we're, we're talking about issues far broader than just the military here. We're talking about far more than, than pronouns and names. We are absolutely under attack and majorly at risk. And if we're going to be a priority for our enemies, we absolutely have to be a priority for our friends. Yeah. So that, that actually 
brings me to a, a very important part. How can allies help? You know, what are some concrete steps that, that you know, we can take in order to be able to, to, you know, to help this cause? First and foremost, there are a lot of organizations working to keep transgender people safe, not just us here in Washington, not just ones that folks may have heard of, like Lambda Legal or the Human Rights Campaign or, or GLAAD. There are also uh, organizations in every state and in every city. So this often looks like a local LGBT center. It often looks like a harm prevention center. It might be a center that's specifically trying to help sex workers in your city and, frankly, putting money where a good ally's mouth is, helping these organizations, help the most vulnerable transgender people is a really key way. If you're looking for organizations, the Trans Justice Funding Project is a network of several hundred trans-led organizations, and you can actually sign up to give a monthly donation to the Trans Justice Funding Project, and then they distribute that in the form of grants to a lot of these smaller organizations. They actually have a cap of, if I recall correctly, $250,000 in annual funding. So it's basically meant as a way to help an organization grow and get to a sense of being self-sustaining. Other good ways are paying attention to who you're voting for making sure that, that trans rights isn't seen as a side issue or, or maybe if they have a bad record on trans rights, that's, that's worth swallowing. It's really understanding that you can't be anti-trans without also being anti-science. You can't be anti-trans without being anti-fairness, anti-truth. Uh, our founder and executive director said, because uh, she was speaking about the, the Democratic race and the primaries right now, and she said that if you don't care about transgender people, you are not a caring person. So it's important to understand that how a politician feels about the most vulnerable people in society, which includes transgender people, is a very good mile marker for their overall morality as a leader. And that ranges from the local school board elections to city council to mayor's races to governor's races to the Senate and the House all the way up to the president. One last important thing, which I know you want to talk about, I'm more than happy to, which is frankly supporting the transgender people in your own life. And whether you know it or not, there are transgender people in your life. And we often tell people that it's not a matter of if you're ever going to have a trans coworker, it is a matter of when. It's not a matter of if you're going to have a transgender friend or a transgender relative or a transgender person in your house of worship, uh, in your, your, your book club, in your, in your, at your dog park. It's a matter of when. We are in every town, we're in every district, and we're increasingly visible. We're increasingly proud to show who we are. And listening to them believing them and respecting them are really, really great ways, not just to support that one person, but to set a model for the other people around you. It's super important that I think a good ally is holding other people accountable as well. So if there's a trans person in your life and you hear people making disparaging comments about them, you hear them maybe only being gendered correctly or referred to as the right gender when they are actually in company. These are oftentimes small steps and sometimes might result in an uncomfortable conversation, but really mean the world of difference. You know, we're seeing something really, really unique right now, and it's it's not going to stay unique for very long. More and more of the members of Congress that we work with are citing that they have a trans person in their family, and that informs a lot of the passion that they put behind fighting for trans equality. And then includes Representative Jan Schakowsky right there in Chicago, who has a uh, trans grandson, and who uh, was the 
first member of Congress to hold a meeting with us uh, after we had founded in 2003. And it includes uh, Premier Jayapal, who uh, during a Judiciary Committee hearing said that she has a, a non-binary child herself. We know of others who maybe aren't as, as, as public, but increasingly uh, in meetings we're being told, oh, well, you know, uh, I, my my nephew just came out as trans or, or uh, you know, th- these are questions that my, my uh, daughter-in-law is just starting to ask and things like that. That's really evidence of the massive impact that every trans person can have. We often say that the most important work being done in the trans rights movement today isn't just being done right here in Washington or in city halls and, and state houses around the country. Uh, it's being done by every trans person who is changing minds, changing their communities, changing their workplaces, changing their schools, uh, often just by being proud of who they are and, and, and setting a good model for the people around them. We're sort of two organizations where we have the 501c3 organization, which is the National Center for Transgender Equality. And then anytime we're doing electoral work, working with campaigns and that kind of thing, we are working from the National Center for Transgender Equality Action Fund. Just this year, we've started interviewing some of the presidential candidates about their stances on trans rights. And the first question we've asked in each interview is, who are the trans people in your life who helped guide you on understanding trans people? Because we understand that trans people are relatively new to everybody. Well, not to trans people, obviously, but to most people. We're eager to have people model what that road towards acceptance looks like, what's, what that evolution and, and growth uh, in accepting transgender people looks like. So when we're interviewing Bernie Sanders and, and, and he's able to talk about, you know, the trans advocates he's met and the trans people he's met on the campaign trail, when we're interviewing Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who, who unfortunately dropped out of the race, but told us this amazing story about a trans kid who is the child of a friend of theirs um, and who is in the seventh grade and, and uh, that when Senator Gillibrand is, is thinking about trans people, she's thinking about this one brave kid in this, this school in New Hampshire who's, who's standing up for themselves. Uh, when we asked Senator Booker, and he's telling us about his uh, trans nephew, um, nephew being a portmanteau of niece and nephew, uh, so this is a non-binary <laughs> person, somebody who would use uh, gender-neutral terms, right? Maybe they would get an ex-gender marker once they're old enough. That prompted some small debate in the office, so nephew is a, a fine term. Our uh, executive director also has a trans person who is uh, their sibling's child and uses the term nebling. Somebody on Twitter pointed out that in a Italian, uh, the word for niece or nephew is already gender neutral, um, and it's nipote, which I kind of like, oh, uh, and yeah. nipoti for plural. Um, anyway, uh, but point being that uh, it's really from the highest halls of power down to the kitchen table. Transgender people are impacting change in really personal ways. Like I said, we are a very popular topic for conservative media. We're on Tucker Carlson every night. You know, we're on Breitbart every day. We're on The Federalist every day. And we're in a lot of hate-inspired groups that are looking to promote lies and prejudice about trans people. It becomes so much harder to believe stereotypes and stigma about somebody when they're your friend, when they're your relative, when you have a, a human face that you can put just simply to the word transgender and understand that, no, this is a person just like me. This isn't a scary talking point. This isn't uh, some bastion of political correctness culture. This is just somebody who wants to live their life with the same sense of liberty and the same sense of autonomy that we provide to other people. A lot of what 
it is, is there's new information, there may be new language, and it just takes a little adjustment, which, you know, change can be hard, but change is awesome. If people have specific questions, your site alone is such a you know amazing resource, including how to become a better ally, a know your rights section, the, you know, all the different policies you guys are working on. There's a lot of information there, including, which I think is fascinating, which a, a questionable question section, which is you know phenomenal, just uh, helping to give people uh, who, who may not have experience some guidance as to you know how how to have conversations and how to get more information. However, with that in mind, how can people get a hold of the NCTE? So the best way to stay up to date on our work and to learn more about trans people is, as you said, either visit us at transequality.org or you can find us on Facebook at the National Center for Transgender Equality or facebook.com slash transequality now. You can find us on Twitter at transequality. You can find us on Instagram at transequality now. Likewise, to, as I said, I, I think a lot of people underestimate how active the trans community is in their own area. Look for organizations like PFLAG, which has chapters across the country, and our support groups for the parents of, of queer kids generally, but trans kids uh, in, including, as well as organizations like Listen, which have chapters across the country, and HRC, which have chapters across the country. There are really easy and approachable ways to learn not just about trans people generally, but about trans people in your area. Oftentimes, we talk about the trans community. But we're 2 million people. It would be odd to even talk about a city of 2 million people as a community. It's a collection of communities. I always encourage people to not just learn about trans people 101, but after that, look into the trans people in your area. How are, you know, the policies and and the laws in place or even just the culture of your city impacting trans people? Because even if you're not seeing them, even if they aren't, um, you know, not every trans person walks around all day with a trans pride flag above their head, and many do. I just want to live their life as they are, um, and that is certainly their right. So it's really good for people to take it upon themselves to learn about what are pressures in their area. Uh, this is a really old-school activism slogan, but uh, uh, thinking globally and acting locally, understanding that, yeah, these problems can seem really big, but oftentimes there's just an organization in your area that will definitely have a donation bucket at the front desk, that will definitely have a donation button on its website that will definitely be eager to, to help you learn more and, and help you find spaces where you're, you can either contribute your time, contribute skills, um, or even just learn how to make the world around you with the power you have more ha- equitable, whether you're an employer, whether you're a medical provider, whether you're a teacher, whether you're just the head of your PTA, whether you're just the head of a community council, whether you're just on a volunteer board. Everyone has some ability to uh, stand up and be a strong, good ally. And it's honestly just been incredible because we have seen so, so, so many allies, as I said, not just from employers who have reached out to us and say, you know, I've, I've updated my policies, I've, I've gone through and made sure that my health care is trans-inclusive, and I want to know what else can I do? What are briefs I can sign on to? What are petitions I can sign on to? What are funds I can help contribute to or raise awareness of? I have parents reach out to me on a regular basis asking, like, I have a trans kid and I just want to know what else can I do? Like, what can I help to make my trans kids' future better? What are things I can do right now to help improve the world, not just for them, but for people like them? I think that looking for spaces within your own community, within uh, a local sense are super important, particularly right now, just where the culture's at. When you look at sort of the slow death of local news, for example, right, yeah. uh, when you look at national, this is an odd term, but nationalizing 
of people's consciousness. They're not taking in local news, and maybe they aren't even that active in their own communities and their own neighborhoods, but they're very active online, which has this way of making the whole world feel like a neighborhood, which has this way of making the whole world feel like a community. And that can be great in a lot of ways, but it's still really important that people are active right out their front door and that they know that there are people who uh, want their help and people who need their help, many of whom are trans. Well, Jillian, this has been incredible. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. You brought so much information to the table and you know, it's been fantastic. I, I'd love to have you come join us again uh, because I think we only scratch the surface in some of these areas. But uh, you know, thank you so much for joining the program today. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a broad conversation, but anytime, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Jillian Brandstetter of the National Center for Transgender Equality for joining us on today's program. To learn more about Jillian and the NCTE, please visit www.transequality.org. You can also call them at 202-642-4542 or email them at ncte at transequality.org. We here at Shoutbox would love to hear from you. So take a second to comment and rate today's program or send us questions, feedback, or any thoughts you might have at shoutbox at kiharding.com. Today's program was recorded by Matt Sorrow at BAM Studios. The program was edited and mixed by Sven at Blue Box Studio. And our show's theme music was written and performed by Melody Jane Wachtel of the band This is a Stick Up. Thank you again for joining us. Have a wonderful two weeks, and we will see you soon. 